Talk. Talk show. Talk back. Talk radio. Walk your talk. Talk your talk. KGNU Talk. Call in. Call in and talk. Call in and connect. Connections. Friday mornings at 8.30 on KGNU. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Eli Kalin with Connections at KGNU Community Radio. We have four amazing people in the studio today to talk about Boulder and how it has been an innovator and forward-thinking community since 1967 when they became the first city in the U.S. to tax itself for the acquisition, management, and maintenance of open space. And how is Boulder continuing to be an innovator over 50 years later. Uh, our first speaker is going to be, let's do Will Tor. Why don't you introduce yourself? Good morning. My name is Will Tour, and I spent 15 years in local government in the 90s and early 2000s as mayor and county commissioner, and did lots of work in open space and land use over that time. Excellent. Thank you very much, Will. We also have Eric Budd in the studio. Hi there, Eric Budd. I've lived in Boulder about 15 years and uh, really gotten involved around kind of the social justice issues around around housing. And I think, you know, just thinking about <clears throat> how Boulder has built such a great town for us and how we can make it accessible to, you know, typical people and, and more people generally. Amazing. Thank you very much. Next up, we have Elise Jones. Good morning. Yeah, I've been in Boulder since 98 and have participated in a number of different forums. I was a Boulder County Commissioner for eight years and did a stint on the City of Boulder's Planning Board for eight years as well. So otherwise, an environmental advocate that cares deeply about climate. Thank you very much. And next up, we have William Shutkin. And if I got that incorrect, please correct me. You've got it correct. Thanks, <laughs> Eli. Um, I've been in Boulder uh, the same amount of time Eric has, 15 years. Uh, I'm an attorney, an educator, a social entrepreneur. I teach at the University of Colorado Boulder, where I head up the Urban Resilience and Sustainability Specialization and the Masters of the Environment program. I also have a small sustainable development real estate practice called Shutkin Sustainable Living. Thank you very much. So ultimately, the United we're not just focused on Boulder as a whole, but the United States. Ultimately, we've been in a massive pendulum swing since the housing crisis of 2008, which has slowed down development overall. And now we have a supply and demand issue. How do you all look at supply and demand as, as Boulder and how it's innovating, whether affordability or just houses in general? 
Well, I'll just jump in and, and note that we're we're really in the midst of two crises. One is affordability, the other is climate change, and they come together in the solution around how we provide more housing, where we put it, whether or not it's affordable, what kind of choices. And we're experiencing nationally and in the state of Colorado this uh, a housing supply deficit, uh, largely due to things like the recession and the supply chain issues. And at the same time, our wages have not kept up. And so people cannot afford to live where they work, where they go to school, and they are driving further and further and further and polluting the air and causing more climate instability in the process. So looking forward, that solution is really about building more housing in the right places and at the right price scale. I'd like love to pick up on what Elise just said, sort of a, as a reframe. So there's the crisis side of housing and climate. Then there's the opportunity side. And this sort of speaks, Eli, to your opening salvo about open space and Boulder's innovation in the late 1960s. I think we've got an opportunity to innovate the flip side of the open space coin, which is how do we take all that amazing land within the urban growth boundary started in the late 1960s, the green belt surrounding the city of Boulder and throughout Boulder County, and start to strategically and creatively fill in all of the un- or underused land that's within our boundary for the very purposes that Elise just described. More housing, closer to more workplaces, closer to more trailheads, closer to more schools. That's, I think, the unfinished business of the late 1960s, and that's the great innovation opportunity, I think, of the early 21st century in Boulder. You know, just to add to that, maybe with a, a little bit of a statewide perspective on this, you know, I think that we're seeing a very similar dynamic where over the last decade, housing construction has not kept up with population growth and demand in the state. And while Boulder is you know, one of a handful of outliers with incredibly high housing costs, the same general trends we're seeing over the vast majority of the state. At the same time, we've also seen that a lot of the development that does take place has been very sprawling exurban de development that's a long way away from where people work and go to school and go to the doctor's office, sort of forcing folks into these long drives that really hurt their quality of life, in addition to uh, all of the environmental issues and the public costs that, that are forced in order to, to address uh, those commutes. And there was an attempt last year at the state legislature to tackle this at a state, statewide basis through Senate Bill 213 that really would have addressed one of the significant barriers to sort of realizing that, that future that Bill was just describing for Boulder. We really need that type of a vision across the state for how we're going to develop our cities while at the same time protecting the land outside of our cities. And we, we probably do need statewide uh, zoning reform in order to make a difference at the scale that will be required. So, Will, I have a question. How does statewide reform affect local communities like Boulder or Summit County, as an example? So... You know, I can I can speak to the legislative proposal that was considered and did not pass last year. 
you know, I'm I'm sure that the issue is not done, and there will be a variety of proposals that come forward this year and into the future. What what last year would have done is it would have essentially legalized infill housing in urban areas. So it didn't really change anything in sort of the unincorporated counties, but it would have required that within cities, A, anywhere where you have good transit service, you would have to allow a larger multifamily housing along those, those transit corridors. And anywhere where you had residential zoning, you would be required to allow what people often call missing middle housing, the kind of housing that always used to get built in cities that allowed cities to evolve over time and address the housing needs of their residents that by and large we have made illegal in most residential areas over the, the, the last few decades. And so that's things like duplexes and threeplexes, it's accessory dwelling units, it's deregulating occupancy to allow people to choose their own roommates and not have the, the government deciding who you get to live with. And, and so those are really the types of changes that were, that were being envisioned. Cities would still do their planning. They would still decide what areas are zoned residential, what areas are zoned for commercial or industrial. But they w would have needed to accommodate a greater level of housing. And there, there was some analysis done by a, a company, Economics Northwest and Mapcraft Labs, that took sort of zoning and market data from uh, many communities in the state and analyzed what the impact would be on creating additional housing opportunities that were sort of economically viable to build. And the conclusion was that it would have created over a half million new economically viable market opportunities and that the vast majority of those were in areas uh, that had better transit service than most of the state and lower vehicle miles traveled than most of the state. So it really would have had the effect, I think, of stimulating housing development in the places where it's really needed. And, and again, to, to Will's point and Eli, your, your question, um, the logic of the urban growth boundary and the green belt of the 60s and 70s was a really sound logic. Build protect beautiful agricultural forest lands, open space around urban centers, existing urban centers, to prevent sprawl. Uh, the problem was we didn't then match that policy strategy with precisely what Will's talking about, an infill strategy. How do you make it easier then to build within the urban growth boundary, thus preventing the leapfrog development that we've seen the last four decades? Um, and Boulder's not alone in that misstep, that failure to match the urban growth boundary with really strategic infill. Look at Portland, Oregon, look at the Bay Area, other big metros in the West, but throughout the country that for at least a half century have had very robust open space protection plans and policies, but haven't matched that with a commitment to sound urban development strategy. Um, and that, I think, is the opportunity today. We're seeing it in Boulder. We're seeing more and more elected officials, staff, more and more citizens who get the land use climate transportation connection, the affordability climate connection, um, and are now slowly but surely starting to change our policy with the same kind of spirit and energy that we saw devoted to open space protection back in the day. 
Oh, we got Eric Budd, and then we're going to touch in on the release. <clears throat> yeah, and I, I think one of the big factors and things to think about is that, um, you know, what we created in Boulder is is really great. Um, and what are the effects of essentially not attacking this problem head on? Um, I think a lot of people in Boulder often want to say, well, you know, I want to keep the same quality of life. I want to keep these things that we love. And I think the reality is that we can't stay where we are right now because um, if we don't really address these land use patterns, if we don't <clears throat> address our, our housing and affordability crises, we see kind of what's happened in Boulder in the past 10 years where you see the state of Colorado has been slowly increasing in population, whereas um, the population of Boulder is essentially stagnant. And you see who is leaving Boulder. It, it's often working families. It's people with um, you know less wealth or less income. And so really my motivation in all this is figure out like how can we change the politics, change the status quo so we can really move on this problem as fast as possible. Well, and I just wanted to chime in and say the same um, environmental ethic and commitment that drove citizens of Boulder to protect open space in 1967 at the ballot should be the same motivation to make sure that we have infill development that prevents sprawl elsewhere in Colorado and tackles the climate change crisis. It's the same environmental ethic now pointed towards a different solution to finish solving the problem. And as Will said, Eli, um, with the proposed Senate Bill uh, 213 last spring, the state was attempting to intervene to solve what is essentially a collective action problem. That is, home rule communities in Colorado, like in so many other states, who were sort of out for their own interest, understandably. Um, and what that's created is this patchwork of essentially sprawling communities with occasional sort of fortress communities like Boulder saying, you know, enough. Um, we do need state action, I think, to rationalize and coordinate among these competing communities, some more affordable, some less affordable, some with more stringent land use control, some less. How do we begin to equalize and rationalize the playing field across the state and other states so that we see a more equitable distribution, not just of open space resources, but affordable housing, workforce housing resources as well? And I, I do think that's a big part of the work going forward. And the state's role, however contested, will be a, a critical piece of that. So this, the city of Denver, Denver did a mass rezoning of the entire city a number of years ago. Would Boulder and other communities, whether it's in Colorado or beyond, benefit from a potential evaluation or mass rezoning of specific areas, possibly along bus lines, along routes, specifically that are transportational hubs, whether bike, bus, or car? Well, the word mass sounds very big and daunting. I do think that doing exactly what you just mentioned, which is adding more housing units along transit corridors is a no-brainer. Most people get that. It makes sense. It provides you with an opportunity to live car-free, which will save you money, and it is a logical place to put more people, and I think that's a, a first step for the city of Boulder. I think we should also 
um, give some credit where credit's due. Boulder is in process of having these conversations now. The current city leadership is is tackling them, and the city of Boulder was the only jurisdiction that came out and said, yes, we think that Senate Bill 213 is an important conversation to have, and we want to be at the table. And that took bravery, and I appreciate the fact that Boulder is starting to head down that path. Eric, go ahead. Yeah, and I think when we think about this, um, I think a lot of the hesitation comes from, well, I I don't want these changes happening in my neighborhood. And one of the things that, going going back to the framing of it, it's we're talking about changing a bit about the built environment. But if we don't make these changes, you're going to get changes in the neighborhood based on who can live there. And I think when we think of about what is what is the right what is the right housing type to raise a family and whatnot. I think that perception is also changing. Um, I think there's in the past it's maybe this perception that well it has to be in a single family home, whereas you know in, in our case uh, my family we live um, four of us in a in a in a two bedroom condo and I think something like a townhome and these kind of more compact type of housing can actually provide benefits to families um, with a variety of different uh, housing types and space and also really ties in with this kind of urban fabric of, you know, being close to where everything you need, being closer to services, being closer to, you know, frankly, other families. And I think that's a really important way to think about how this could change for the better. I mean, Eric, you're essentially reimagining, redefining the American dream in exciting and very urban ways moving from uh, a sort of sprawling, uh, uh, open uh, landscape of detached housing to a compact and connected one, essentially a more European-type vision of the dream. And maybe we can have both. Eli, to your to your question, uh, Boulder isn't necessarily doing mass or citywide zoning or rezoning, but we are doing major rezoning and have for many years now. Think about the conversations underway about the municipal airport. Um, Think about Area 3, just north of the Holiday neighborhood. And think about all of East Boulder. And we sit currently in the studio in East Boulder. um, And the East Boulder subcommunity plan, which was adopted just a couple of years ago, which included some new zoning rules. And this is getting pretty technical and wonky, but basically Boulder did a semi-revolutionary thing in the last year. We removed in industrial zones the requirement that if you want to build housing, you have to be next to an existing housing zone or residential zone or open space. We removed that to make it easier to, in fact, build the kind of connected housing to work centers, job centers, that at least in Eric and Will are all talking about. So that's a critical step, but it's just one step, um, getting us closer to uh, a a better, more urban, more compact boulder going forward. Yeah. You know, just to pick up on this a little bit, I wanted to really agree with Elise in terms of giving credit to the current council. I do think that we have a a more pro-housing council and a sort of a pro-housing council majority than we've seen in Boulder in a long time. I would give a lot of credit to our current mayor, Aaron Brockett. Certainly, he he showed some real courage, I think, in helping to push for, for Boulder to take a position in SB 213 and showing up uh, down in Denver, the capital, for those debates. I also think that 
you know, Boulder has done some really good things over the last couple of years in terms of expanding access to accessory dwelling units, um, relaxing its occupancy limits. I still think it would be better to get rid of them altogether, but that move from three to five, I think will help, you know, possibly thousands of people in the city of Boulder to stabilize their their housing situations by being able to sort of come out of the shadows and and be be living legally. So I do think there's some real credit to give there. But I also think it's uh, important to to realize just how much more there is to do at both at the Boulder level and statewide. And that fundamentally, this isn't a problem that can be solved only at the level of one municipality. You know, even, even if we really relax the restrictions and being able to build housing in Boulder, if you're not doing that in the rest of the state at the same time, you're, I think, still going to have the dynamic that there's just the, so much underbuilding of housing stock compared to the demand from people who are living here and working here that we're not going to be able to solve the problem. So I give a lot of credit to work that the Boulder Council is doing. I wish them the best, and we need the larger statewide solutions also. No doubt. Yeah. Thanks, Will, for that point. And and I, I do think our current city council, planning board, staff, all um, deserve credit for continuing to move us forward with more forward thinking and progressive policies. Let's also remember that cities like Boulder, and Boulder is in no way unique, the kinds of cities, many of them university towns, um, that have uh, a great quality of life, jobs, uh, young people, older people, uh, a real mix that makes it dynamic and and fun to live in. Um, we tend to be dominated in our zoning policy by single-family homes. So Boulder, uh, about 80, 83 percent of our residential land is zoned exclusively for detached single-family housing. You know, that's that's an opportunity from the policy angle, which will take and does take bold political leadership to begin to sort of attack that problem. How do we reduce that number from, say, 83% to maybe 60%? Uh, at the same time, as I noted before, really targeting our commercial and industrial zones, uh, the Flatiron Business Park, for example, the uh, East Walnut, where we are sitting right now in the studio with all of its underused, inefficient land use, um, there's so many opportunities to target commercial and industrial areas to fill them in with uh, housing and other mixed use. Um, and I think, frankly, that's the better priority than at this point trying to take on uh, single-family neighborhoods. Let's start to look at old dilapidated shopping centers, business parks, where there's plenty of land, uh, but a lot of it is underutilized. It's already connected to the grid, to transportation and transit corridors. Um, really uh, extraordinary opportunity to do the kind of infill that we haven't done to date. And just building off of what Will and William just talked about, um, there are local opportunities and the statewide conversation will be coming back. The next legislative session starting in January we already know that the governor, housing advocates, transportation advocates, climate advocates, businesses, um, 
are all going to be joining together to continue the conversation um, that was started last session. Nothing passed last session, but really the seeds were planted for a much more inclusive conversation about how the state of Colorado can work with its local governments to really tackle this issue, which is really happening all over the state. So it's going to be exciting. There's an opportunity for Boulderites to join in the state conversation as well as work on these issues locally. Perfect. Thank you very much. Uh, so coming back into uh, Spencer, who is not able to join us today, mentioned the CU is working on expanding with the purchase of 308 acres. And then, I mean, also investing in their football program with the hiring of <laughs> Coach Prime. <laughs> but um, it also comes down to a story that we just covered this morning is professors were literally protesting on CU campus yesterday for better pay. And ultimately, like the people who are teaching these children who are coming to our town to get a higher education ultimately can't even afford to live in our community. Eric Bud. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I I definitely saw the protest and I you know, I think I think it's inspiring and also tragic that um that people who are generally well paid in our community can't afford to live here. And I think the thing that I've seen at, at CU over the years is that <clears throat> kind of the longer in the past that you came to CU, the more likely you were to be able to take your salary and and afford to live in Boulder. And I think especially as every year that passes, every incoming professor or grad student or, or whatnot, uh, it gets a bit harder. And I think we need to do a lot more to pay higher wages, but it really also does tie into the housing piece as well, because if we don't address our, our housing crisis more generally, and and it's in particular the real housing challenges we have in Boulder, those higher wages are, are going to directly turn into higher housing costs and higher rent. So, you know, I think the two are, are in, intrinsically linked. I'll just piggyback and say my daughter started at CU Boulder just a few weeks ago, so um, I feel very even more connected to that issue. And I think it underscores the fact that not only do we need more housing supply, if that's not enough, it's not all housing everywhere, it is we need housing that's attainable and affordable to different income levels housing choice so that if you're not a tenured professor, but maybe you're a teaching assistant, you can still afford to live in the community where you're helping teach students. And we see that with CU Boulder. We see that in other colleges across the state and, quite frankly, the, the entire country. It's, it's a growing issue. I went to grad school at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Same thing. Go blue. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Born in Ann Arbor, so... Did not go blue. And again, this is <laughs> and, a this, and go buffs. Yeah, totally. This this <laughs> is a, an innovation opportunity. So, it's it's about CU partnering with developers and communities to build more housing for its workforce, be they faculty or staff. It's in our case, one of our projects just uh, up from CU on Arapaho Avenue. Uh, we have a partnership with Boulder Community Hospital, which is less than a mile away. Twenty two hundred employees most of whom cannot afford to live in the city of Boulder, have to commute 45 minutes on average each way. So we've basically created a, a memorandum of understanding, an agreement where 
up to 30 units in any given leasing cycle will be made available to their employees first. That includes permanently affordable units as well as market rate units. How do we get more essential workers, especially healthcare workers, the same folks who stepped up during the pandemic, um, to be able to walk, bike, uh, or short commute to their workplace rather than spending a couple of hours in a car? Um, so what we're talking about, I think, are just novel ways of partnering private sector, public sector, to provide essential services that one or the other, government or uh, the business community, simply aren't able to do at the scale we need them to do it today. I have a, I have a follow-up question in tune in line with that is, would cities across the country ultimately benefit from basically creating their own development company and developing their own affordable housing? Or would it be better to leave it to the professionals? And I mean, whether it's hiring professionals and running their own organization to build these. I think it's a great question. Some of you might have read recently about Montgomery County, Maryland, which has an effect on that. So their county government is in a position both to finance and develop the housing they need for their lower and middle income uh, uh, residents, uh, citizens. Um, I think what we're experiencing and have been experiencing for a few decades is a market failure. Uh, the inability of the market to deliver on key social or public goods and increasingly communities making it more difficult, not easier, for the private sector to actually deliver on those public goods. That's the sort of paradox of the open space protection plans of the 60s and 70s. We solved one side of the equation, but we made the other side of the equation harder to solve, the infill urban strategy. So my sense is that we do need to look to other places, whether it's um, among our own in, in Maryland uh, or, or the like, or abroad. Let's look at Northern Europe, where a lot of housing from low to, to upper income is social housing, public housing. That's basically a, a social safety net. It's not just the housing, it's health care, it's education. Um, so we've seen costs for basic public goods uh, that all of us need, require, and want continue to go up um, along with the demand. And I think it will ultimately take government's solution and strategy working with the private sector, not against it, uh, to deliver uh, at the scale we, we need it delivered. And I'd give to, a, oh, <laughs> go ahead, Will. You know, just to add to that, you know, in many ways, the development, publicly owned development companies that you were talking about already exist. So if you think in the Boulder context, we have both the Boulder County Housing Authority and Boulder Housing Partners as essentially publicly owned housing authorities whose mission is to invest in and develop you know, housing that is affordable to low-income residents. And there's a lot of great projects that they've done over the years. You know, if you go down 30th Street right now and think about the development that's happening in the Boulder Junction area, the affordable housing at 30th and Pearl at the old Pollard Motors site, it, you know, that's Boulder Housing Partners is integrally involved in that. I think one of the interesting opportunities in, in Colorado really comes from Proposition 123 last year, which the voters approved that will 
uh, invest about $300 million a year into affordable housing and is clearly a, a source of funding that nonprofit housing developers and housing authorities should really tap into. I think there was some, some pretty interesting design to that ballot measure, the way that it tied access to the funding to local governments making some changes and including sort of speeding up the permitting of affordable housing and building affordable housing at scale. And, you know, there are so far there are a limited number of communities that have opted in, but I think more will opt in over time. But I think that presents a real opportunity to look at really upping the, that level of investment into essentially social housing. I'd also note that you know, the way that Boulder's inclusionary zoning ordinance is structured, where a substantial number of private sector developers end up using what's known as the cash in lieu option to essentially pay into a fund, um, which is probably a good thing because the, the city and Boulder Housing Partners are then able to leverage those dollars to get more affordable housing than we would otherwise likely have gotten. But that uh, that also provides an ongoing funding stream to support you know, that that sort of publicly controlled affordable housing that I, I think is an important part of the picture, especially in really high cost areas like Boulder. I think there are parts of the state where simply removing some of the restrictions on housing supply would largely address the problem. But in our highest cost, highest demand areas, you know, I think solutions like inclusionary zoning are certainly part of the picture too. So, Will, you bring up a good point about cash in lieu. And is it an acceptable practice for affordable home programs or whether it's locally or nationally to allow developers just to pay cash in lieu or provide land? Or is it a better practice to just ultimately, I don't want to say force, but require them to build affordable housing? And then before we move on, I wanted to invite kind of the world out there to call in if you would like. The number is 303-442-4242. And then, William, take it away. Sure. Just to, to continue Will's uh, comments, um, and Will's absolutely right to praise the efforts of the Boulder County Housing Authority and Boulder Housing Partners, the housing authorities for the city and county, respectively. Um, and they do wonderful work. They're also overwhelmed because the demand is so great, which is why I think we need more public-private partnership. Um, I don't think at this point in time uh, local or county governments can take on the, the challenge uh, sufficiently themselves. They need private sector players, private developers to support in that effort. Um, but we don't make it easier to do that kind of partnership. Um, to your question about cash in lieu and, and inclusionary housing, um, either way, an inclusionary housing ordinance is forcing the, the private sector, the, the market, to, to do something that is generally very expensive. And when you consider how difficult it is in general to build housing, if it's not the highest priced, most luxury housing imaginable in a place like Boulder, um, that's part of the, the barrier, the, the challenge that we need to surmount. How do we make it easier to build mixed income, mixed use housing, um, relying both on our housing authorities and the private sector? 
to deliver. So I don't think it's necessarily problematic for, to require a developer to pay cash in lieu, but that's not necessarily delivering us the units we need to actually provide shelter for people. Also note that, generally speaking, housing authorities are not in a position to build middle income or market rate housing. Um, and middle income housing has really become the great challenge of our time. We've, we have a low income housing tax credit. We don't have the equivalent for middle income housing. Um, so while it's difficult to build low income housing, generally speaking, it's even more difficult to build middle income housing in markets like Boulder. Very nice. So before I have Eric Budd jump in, we have a call from Marty. I mean, actually, we have six phone calls, but <laughs> we're going to take it one at a time. Good morning, Marty. Uh, good morning. Um, <clears throat> I uh, have to say I um, am, uh, find this uh, both enlightening and extremely upsetting. I can't believe what I'm hearing, uh, that uh, all of you on the panel are advocating for more housing and building in Boulder uh, infill. I wasn't familiar with this uh, word or term. Um, all I see is more and more building uh, in this town, like uh, Will referenced, you know, per, uh, Pearl and 30th. There's a huge complex going in over there at Arapahoe and, like, Cherryvale, that area. And when I drive by, and, yes, I have a car, I do feel, um, despite Elise's goal of being carless, and this will help us with that, that in this country you really need a car. We don't have the kind of rail systems and public uh, systems uh, that they have in Europe. But um, every unit I drive by, I see that's one or two more cars in this town. There's one or two more cars. And we are a small town, so we're loading up a very small town with more and more people. We all know what's happening with the traffic, and I feel there's a limit uh, and in some ways, affordability, I mean, really are not developers and builders making lots of money. It almost seems like a ruse that, oh, this is affordable uh, housing. And, um, you know, I have to wonder, see you expanding. We just, we can't just grow, grow, grow. I have to ask what happened to Boulder's love of Al Bartlett and his mathematical models. You know, he sounded the alarm on the dangers of continuous growth. So that's my comment. Thank you very much, Marty. Thanks for calling in. And you then bet. Eric Budd had a comment. <clears throat> yeah, you know, I'd, I'd really like to talk about inclusionary zoning a bit more. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's something that's, it's kind of in the weeds, but I, I think I think it's helpful to understand when we talk about um, requiring developers to pay for affordable housing. You know, I think in general, that's that's a a decent and reasonable strategy to do so and this this um this tension between requiring the developer to build these units on sites that they're doing versus this cash and lieu idea which is developers having to pay cash into the affordable housing program i think the the city council just discussed this in the past week or two and i think it really brought out you know kind of the latest thinking on the different different ways to think about this, but the, the research that was reported on from the city staff was that when, when we apply all of these additional grants that the city has access to, that typically paying cash in lieu 
builds two to three times as much affordable housing in net than requiring developers to build it on site. And so, you know, there's certainly benefits from building on site as well, where, you know, you can potentially get more integrated communities and whatnot. And so I wouldn't think of these as one is good and one is bad. I think these are both tools in the toolbox that really get us towards, you know, the, the amount of housing supply we need and also like the kind of community and the kind of fabric that, that we're gaining in Boulder. Yeah. Elise, and then we're going to take one more call. Totally agree with the shout out to Boulder County Housing Authority and Boulder Housing Partners and Eric's comments about Cash and Lou as a tool in the toolbox that they need, and we need a mix of both of those. But I really wanted to respond to Marty. Marty, I hear you. We love Boulder, and change is hard, and so I want to acknowledge that. And going past construction, it's a pain in the neck, no doubt about it. I also wanted to hear what you're saying about transit. Uh, state of Colorado underfunds transit operations horribly, and that's a it's a problem we need really need to tackle. That's another bill that's likely to be considered at the legislature coming up. Is we need to do better at making uh, mobility options available. So even if you own a car, maybe you don't have to drive as far or as often. That you have options that are affordable and clean, so that when new housing units are, um, come online. Um, they aren't going to increase traffic in a way that's really um, problematic. So I want to hear you and say that there are some solutions around that that we should all be working on together as well. One other, one other point that I would add in there is that several years ago, I was part of a study of transportation in Boulder in which we looked at uh, travel by people who lived in Boulder and then the number of miles that were being traveled by people who worked in Boulder and lived outside. And this probably isn't a big surprise, but it was about three times as much driving coming from the folks who were in commuting as from the folks who lived inside Boulder. So the idea that sort of keeping our residential population small, it's actually been basically shrinking over time rather, rather than growing, while the number of people who are working here continues to increase, the idea that that is going to make traffic better, I think, is just not accurate. That, in fact, one of the best things that we can do is to build more housing that will allow more people to live relatively close to where they're working or going to school. Well, that's an excellent point. And I wanted to bring in, since we brought up transportation before we take this one call, is Longmont, Colorado, created basically created a pilot program around microtransit. And I'm really interested in looking into that and how it actually works. But we also have Naira on the line, and we're not going to be able to get to everybody, but I wanted to bring in at least one more or two more callers. So good good morning, Naira. You are live on the KGNU Airwaves. Thank you all for your decades of service uh, and strategies for a better quality of life here in Boulder County. Um, your conversations are fascinating, and uh, I just want to add into um, the conversation sustainability as it relates to natural resources. I recall hearing a number of years ago um, uh, panels uh, similar to yours discussing water um, availability in a high alpine desert as our climate is. And so just integrating the reality of exponential growth with um, the for, 
fragility of our water systems by nature. And uh, it would be wonderful to include um, permacultural design systems and so forth that have been demonstrated in Arizona and other places to harvest waters that, you know, from rain and to really organize water systems that help um, what you're talking about. And I'd like to hear that conversation um, about how do you address the exponential growth of Boulder with its fragile water systems. In addition to, um, you had mentioned that agriculture is one of the biggest um, industries of, of this area. Um, adding into that, the already innovative ideas of urban farming, urban gardening, that helps grow food for our locals and keeps food here, but also coordinating with wildlife um, migration patterns that come through here in the city. And it would be nice to just not be people-focused, but also what our open space was designed for was to establish stability for wildlife and an enjoyment of wildlife, but also sustainability and interaction with wildlife. Bears that come down in their seasons and eat, you know, the fruit trees, fruits from the trees that people are growing can we coordinate and also expand the reality that we live in the foothills and have mountain relations and uh, and creating so that the wildlife is also part of this whole conversation. So it's just broadening the concentric circles of those who rely on this land and its natural resources. Thank you. Thank you very much, Naira. I'd love to hand the mic off to Elise or Will, but I think Elise is ready to take it. Well, I think, thank you so much for bringing up those important comments about sustainability and particularly on water. I want to note that our current single-family zoning pattern uses twice as much water than, say, a multifamily uh, development of the same on the same footprint, and that's largely because we have bluegrass lawns and that use up a lot of water. So this this idea of encouraging infill actually provides better protection of our, our water supplies. And I would also just add to that that the, the um, opposite of encouraging infill, if we don't want to do that, what we're doing is saying yes to sprawl. And sprawl chews up our open space, our farmland, our wildlife habitat, and uses more water because of those big expansive landscapes that need to get irrigated so if we care about sustainability, we're going to care about having a compact, infill, climate-friendly footprint. Absolutely. Well said, Elise. So think about it. You know, we, we tend to think of the urban growth boundary and open space in land terms. Think of the glacier terms, right, the blue zones that Boulder is famous for, preserving water resources from the mountains. And the way I think we honor and and fulfill the promise of the Blue Zone strategy is precisely the way Elise just described. Multifamily, infill, efficient housing and development in general is much more water-conserving and energy-conserving than the traditional land-use patterns of single-family, uh, lawn-dependent development that we continue to see. And note, too, that uh, you know, as goes Las Vegas and Phoenix, so will likely go Boulder, which is to say no more irrigation for Kentucky bluegrass. Um, we need to find alternative ways of of uh, covering our open space besides uh, uh, the grass that we, we become so used to. 
You guys bring up a good point. As as a realtor, I've gone into multiple three-plus million-dollar homes that were just built. There are very strict standards on building, but these houses that have been built ultimately have bluegrass lawns. Well, that's partly because of Eric's point. Uh, I mean, Eric is reimagining the dream. The dream historically was a Jeffersonian dream, the, the yeoman farmer with a detached farmhouse and a, maybe a, a picket fence in front. And certainly a two or three car garage, you know, updated in the 20th century. Eric's describing a, a new American dream, which is smaller, which is more compact, which is more connected to the other places where we spend most of our days. Um, and I think that's going to require a sort of cultural shift. It is happening, you know, in the interstices, uh, in the in the in the shadows. Um, but it will take time. And and what Eric is saying, I think, is. Uh, a vision of of a slightly different future than the one where we've been used to in in the U S. And I think that is the future, ultimately. And then Elise. Well, one thing that's related to this that we haven't talked on is our changing demographics, and we are getting older, and we are not um, building the kind of units that older adults are going to want to live in anymore, which have, that are more accessible, smaller, less maintenance, less upkeep, less lawn to mow. Um, and so this pattern that we're talking about, this new dream, actually works well with the uh, shifting demographics that will be Boulder and Colorado um, in over the next couple of decades. Yeah. Eric, you got anything to say? No, I'm I'm very in alignment with these these thoughts. Yeah. All right. We actually have a, a, a we had a, an an email <laughs> uh, from Dave Well to call open space land unused or underused where humans generally can't or don't go for a variety of reasons is to redefine the definition and to propose of having open space. Open space as habitat and habitat corridors, as a visual greenbelt, as a refuge for displaced wildlife, has inherent intringent value. The original visions of the blue line that D'Angelo... I'm dyslexic, so sometimes I can't read. Dissimilary development land for... Public and wildlife commons knew that they were offering a challenge to once the future residents of Boulder County to remain responsible and keep open space and never fragment wildlife corridors, nor pressure all the other living things in in the midst of getting the way, getting out of the way for us. Now we've got a comment from Eric Budd, and then Will, we'll let you chime in. Yeah, I I think... Um, in this conversation, everyone that I've heard referred to as underused space or under underutilized or whatnot, I think my sense and my belief is that we are all talking about space that has already been developed. We're actually not talking about developing on open space. We're Parking talking, lots and shopping exactly. centers. Right. Yeah. We're talking about you know one-story buildings. We're talking about things that we have already committed to developing. They're already developed um, but they're just they're not really serving a great purpose. They're bad for the environment to leave them this way, but also they're not serving the people in Boulder and in our communities very well. And so I think all of us would agree that we want to retain our urban footprint, not expand it. So if we do that, how can we look at the least used spaces within Boulder already already developed to think about how we can reimagine those? 
Well said. We all love open space, and nobody wants to uh, do anything to diminish it at all. Very true. Very true. So I'm going to take another call, and I wanted to ultimately thank Jim, Jan, and John, but we are going to talk to John. Good morning, John. You are live on the KGNU Airwaves. Well, good morning. Somebody mentioned that uh, the market might not be working, market failure. I think market success is what we have. Uh, the point is that the uh, we live under austerity capitalism and the, the government uh, is and the rules are all set to maximize profits. So it's working fine. It's just meeting the needs of those with money. Uh, but the answer, of course, to the real needs of the people who who don't rate as middle class, that growing number of uh, pre and post family and the working class and, uh, you know, people with high expenses. Uh, John, you got the single family house, single family house is, is not the answer. And uh, we have to get away from this idea of, uh, you know, cash in lieu and uh, and any connection with developers. And collect revenue, right. uh, need get thank, some government for people, much, and right. and get some public housing going with small units. Like uh, you look at the well-designed spaces in in uh, RVs and boats, and make it a little bigger. All right. Thank, and uh, that's thank you what very we much, need. John. I have to cut you off just because of time. Appreciate your input, and William. Sure, Eli, um, and I appreciate John's comments. Um, and I take it that John wasn't necessarily uh, s- sticking to the true definition of market failure in his in his description and his frustration. Um, the The fact is that if building housing in cities like Boulder were profitable, we'd see more of it built. Um, and to the extent that we rely essentially on government or nonprofit developers to build a lot of our permanently affordable housing stock tells you um, that the market is not prepared or willing to to do the same. Um, Hence my argument. We need more public-private partnership. We need uh, inclusionary housing ordinances that are indeed flexible and nimble. We need to come up with new policy that incentivize the construction of middle-income housing when there are no tax credits currently available to make it more affordable and cost-effective to build. Um, so there are all sorts of sort of technical um, and very particular moves I think we need to make, and many folks are thinking about this and are starting to to implement this. Um, bottom line is, it's neither uh, something the market can handle on its own nor government. I believe we need a mix of both, and we have models out there for how to do that. The one thing I would add to that is that I think part of the reason why the market doesn't deliver housing is because we don't allow it to deliver housing because over most of our successful cities, we have such restrictive residential zoning. Right, we so, make it so costly. Right, exactly. One of the things that we need to do is at a statewide level, open up the ability to just legally build the housing that we need in the right places. And that's the key is where are the right places? Yeah, there's the rub, yeah. That's where not in my backyard comes in, right? So every place is the right place to someone, but to someone else, it's exactly the wrong place. But it is absolutely inside our existing cities. It's not in our open space or our farmland, right? right? right. Because then we haven't solved the problem. People are still driving 
very, very far to get to where they need to go. So the, if the formula only works if we're building inside our cities and that some of that that is going to have to be permanently affordable, middle-income housing so that the people that work in our cities and our towns can actually live there. I really think that's the mandate, uh, Elise's point. Let's take the same super creative competitive energy we brought in Boulder to solving our open space conservation problem. Let's bring that to the urbanization density issue. Uh, I said in 2009, density is the new open space, not to be controversial, but to suggest that we need the same creative, innovative energies brought to the challenge of urbanization in Boulder um, as we brought to the challenge of, of conserving land in the face of sprawl in the 1960s. Incredible opportunity for, for folks to be creative and get involved. Yes. I like how you're saying about nimble and being t- able to adapt or turn on a dime if we need to, to ultimately create the infill in the appropriate places in Boulder. And uh, this is actually bringing us to the end of our show. And I want to just thank ev- all of our panelists and all of our callers and emailers who called in and both were able to get on the radio and also not get on the radio. But I wanted to take a t- moment to say thank you to everybody out there for listening and putting your two cents in.